Episode 35 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.10, Second Kingmen Dissension Campaign. The most dangerous enemy is always the enemy within. That is true personally, and it is true for nations and states. The most brutal wars are civil wars because the violence and the emotions are intimate, the opponents are neighbors, and the problems are personal. The Book of Mormon shows these problems in stark contrast and with vivid detail. The Book of Mormon story begins with the violence and problems being between brothers and a father and his sons. It continued with the division of the community as contentions grew into dissensions, and the first Antichrist came from inside the community. During the Amalekiahite War, the most detailed Nephite War, we have three occurrences of internal strife and division. The dissension of the people of Morianton, which we talked about in episode 25, or part 5.6. The first Kingmen dissension campaign, which we talked about in episode 27, or part 6.2. And now we see the second Kingmen dissension campaign. Three times Mormon instructs his readers about the problems associated with uncommitted or dissenting persons living within a community. Anytime a prophet says something more than once, it is worth paying attention to. In this episode, hopefully we can better understand what we are being told. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is different in many ways. I began my preparation for it going in one direction, and then as I read and reread the material, I realized that Mormon was taking the reader in another direction than I originally thought. As a result, this episode will be different from the standard battle analysis that was used to discuss the first Kingmen dissension campaign for a couple of reasons. Most important reason is the letters sent and received by Moroni, which really dominate what was happening. The second reason is that the context of the story, as is true so many times in the Book of Mormon, is much richer than the details provided about a battle or battles which are scant to non-existent as it is. As a result of these differences, I will infuse spiritual lessons throughout rather than limiting them to a single part of the episode as I normally do. This discussion includes portions of Alma chapter 59, all of chapters 60 and 61, and part of chapter 62. Chapter 60 is the letter from the Chief Captain Moroni to the Chief Judge and Governor, Pahoran, and Chapter 61 is the response from Pahoran to Moroni. I will say this again, but I want to express at the beginning the importance of these letters. Mormon includes them, essentially, in their entirety, and they appear in the first person, meaning that they are transcripts of the original correspondence. Why? I will offer a greater discussion later in this episode, but I want to express here, in brief, the significance that I have identified. The letter from Moroni to Pahoran is a form of instruction to each reader of the roles and responsibilities of a leader to those who are led. The letter from Pahoran to Moroni 
is a form of instruction to each reader on the proper response by one in authority to the criticism and censure coming from those over whom the recipient has stewardship. More on this to follow. Now, let's discuss the context. Historical context. The 29th year of the reign of the judges ended with Moroni and his army having regained the city of Gid and freed the prisoners there. Moroni was then determined to launch another campaign against the city of Morianton, which was described in Alma 53:33 as an, quote, exceeding stronghold, close quote. Moroni received an epistle from Helaman in the middle of the preparation for this attack, as we are told in Alma 56.1. The epistle was received on the second day, first month of the 30th year of the reign of the judges. This was the epistle from Helaman 2, about which this podcast has spent several episodes, including episodes 29, 30, 32, and 33, or parts 6.4, 6.5, 6.7, and 6.8, that discussed the actions of the Nephite armies in the West. From that epistle, Moroni learned of the successes and challenges in the Western theater, and he was told, and he surmised, that problems existed at Zarahemla. I want to remind the listener that Moroni fought the kingmen in the first kingmen dissension campaign from about the 25th year to the 27th year of the reign of the judges. He arrived in the Eastern Theater only at the end of the 27th year of the reign of the judges, and therefore it had only been about two years between when he thought that he had put down the rebellion or insurgency of the kingmen until he received this letter, and it became clear just how bad things may have become in Zarahemla. That said, the letter from Helaman II was mostly good news, and Moroni sent a letter off to Pahoran asking for reinforcements for Helaman II and his army. Moroni then returned to his planning efforts to complete the destruction of the Lamanite forces then in the east. Before Moroni was able to take advantage of those plans, a Lamanite army reinforced by forces who fled or retreated from cities and battles in the west captured the city of Nephiha. Moroni was saddened frustrated, and more than a bit angry, as we read in Alma chapter 59, verses 11 to 13. Quote, and now, when Moroni saw that the city of Nephiha was lost, he was exceedingly sorrowful, and began to doubt, because of the wickedness of the people, whether they should not fall into the hands of their brethren. Now this was the case with all the chief captains. They doubted and marveled also because of the wickedness of the people, and this because of the success of the Lamanites over them. And it came to pass that Moroni was angry with the government because of their indifference concerning the freedom of their country. Close quote. Based off those emotions, Moroni authored a letter addressed to the chief judge and governor of the land, Pahoran. That letter comprises almost the entirety of Alma chapter 60. This is a chapter of some 36 verses. It is a crucial question to ask why Mormon included this letter in its entirety in the record. As I have previously brought up, this is a first-person letter, which means that it is unique and important. So what does it have to say to us? 
Moroni's letter to Pahoran. I want to remind the listener that this letter ought to be viewed in a metaphorical sense as a treatise on leadership and the responsibilities of a leader. In short, this leader is not a rant. This is a doctrine of spiritual leadership and responsibility. This letter includes some profound leadership lessons relevant to every reader of the Book of Mormon, as we are all leaders in one way or another. Every member of the Church of Jesus Christ is a minister. Every member is a teacher, and a great many of us are parents and or have other leadership responsibilities. I want to cover the general lessons and then focus on a couple of places that are sermons in a statement. The big lessons include the following. 1. Leaders are responsible to provide nourishment to the army. 2. Leaders are responsible to provide weapons and protection to the army. 3. The purpose of leadership is the welfare and freedom of the people. 4. Bad things sometimes happen to include death as an indictment of the wicked. 5. Disunity is the problem. 6. Ease and comfort are significant and often debilitating problems. 7. Memory matters. This is a lesson on the importance of history. That may seem obvious from a historian, but Moroni places great blame on the problem of forgetting history as a source of poor decisions. 8. Leaders need to be active. 9. Followers, the army in the story, are protected through faith and patience. Now, I would like to address some of the specific sermons captured in these verses. In verse 2, Moroni explains the responsibilities of those in charge. It is right here that this letter is directed to us. If we have a position of authority, such as parent, teacher, civic or church leader, or any other similar position, quote, For behold, I have somewhat to say unto them by the way of condemnation. For behold, ye yourselves know that ye have been appointed to gather together men, and arm them with swords, and with scimitars, and all manner of weapons of war of every kind, and send forth against the Lamanites in whatsoever parts they should come into our land. Close quote. Leaders have a responsibility to gather people in the form of an army, arm those people with a variety of weapons, and send them forth against opponents, wherever those opponents may be. This is a profound set of truths and directives. In the military, we often speak of specified and implied tasks. You can hear, and I have emphasized, the specified tasks. The implied tasks are as many or even more. To do these things, a leader must have weapons previously manufactured and stored. Not just weapons, but weapons of every kind. A variety that can perform a variety of tasks against a variety of opponent capabilities. Leaders also need to know where the enemies are and where the forces are needed so that they can be so directed. Moroni expounds on the suffering of the forces under Pahoran's command in verses 3, 4, and 5. He says that the people have died as a result of the leadership neglect. In verse 6, he asks about the cause of the neglect, and then in verse 7, he posits that it comes from a thoughtless stupor or blind ignorance. Consider what that means. How often have I been unaware of the suffering occurring around me that I could have ended 
if I had only provided some effort. Such withholding is neglect, as Moroni expresses in verse 10. Verse 11 includes a fascinating discourse in a single line, quote, Could ye suppose that ye could sit upon your thrones, and because of the exceeding goodness of God, could do nothing, and he would deliver you? Close quote. God will not solve our problems simply because he is good. It is not enough for us to sit back and trust in God's goodness. We have to act within the sphere of influence that we have been given. Verses 12 to 14 include another powerful lesson. Quote, Do ye suppose that, because so many of your brethren have been killed, it is because of their wickedness? I say unto you, if you have supposed this, ye have supposed in vain. For I say unto you, there are many who have fallen by the sword, and behold, it is to your condemnation. For the Lord suffereth the righteous to be slain, that his justice and judgment may come upon the wicked. Therefore ye need not suppose that the righteous are lost because they are slain. But behold, they do enter into the rest of the Lord their God. And now, behold, I say unto you, I fear exceedingly that the judgments of God will come upon this people because of their exceeding slothfulness, yea, even the slothfulness of our government, and their exceedingly great neglect towards their brethren, yea, towards those who have been slain. Close quote. Sometimes good people suffer because of our slothfulness, laziness, and failure to do our duty. This is a powerful condemnation. I don't offer this to condemn anyone. Rather, it is important to note that this should serve as a reminder not to judge others. Their suffering may not be a result of their actions, but possibly a result of my inaction. This is especially important for those in a leadership position. Moroni gives a powerful sermon in verses 15 to 17 on the danger of disunity and the importance of unity. Infighting is what led to societal weakness and allowed the Lamanites to be successful in their offensive actions. Moroni was singling out the actions of the kingmen. For each of us, there is a powerful message of the importance of sustaining leaders and sustaining each other. Dissension within a community is what generates weakness and opens the community to successful outside attack. The critical point that Mormon is trying to make is that it is so much easier to maintain a well-defended and unified community than it is to retake a lost fortification or create unity after a defeat. I think the best short sermon comes from verse 24 when Moroni says, quote, Begin to be up and doing, close quote. This is an emphasis on a life of action. If you haven't been up and doing, then begin to be so. The final short sermon comes from verse 35 when Moroni says, quote, Now see that ye fulfill the word of God. Close quote. That is a straightforward command for each of us. Pahoran's letter to Moroni. One of the interesting details that comes out of Alma chapters 59 to 61 is that no one really knew who could be trusted. Moroni didn't know if Pahoran had gone over to the dark side, so to speak. He thought that maybe Pahoran was now in league with kingmen-like elements of the government. Pahoran also seemed to question whether or not he could trust Moroni. Why might that have been? Remember that Amalekiah was a master liar. He, after all, is the Book of Mormon's Satan archetype, and Satan is considered the father of all lies. 
As I have suggested and stated previously, there seemed to have been some network of Amalekiah supporters in the Nephite lands who were working with Amron and other Lamanite commanders. We are told that the Nephite dissenters, or those who were sympathetic to Amalekiah, helped the armies of Amron to capture the cities in the Western Theater. It seems reasonable to imagine that there were many who were inclined to spread rumors and lies throughout the Nephite lands. This was an era without mass communication of any type. Any news could be suspect, as there was no way to confirm or trust its veracity other than coming from a trusted source. Maybe Pahoran was receiving falsely generated reports of renegade commanders who sought to overthrow his position. We just don't know. What we do know is that neither Moroni nor Pahoran began this exchange of epistles with a great deal of trust in their correspondent. Moroni's letter seemed to have provided a critical reassurance. His vehement rejection of the kingmen provided confidence to Pahoran, and I can almost hear and feel Pahoran's relief as he expresses his appreciation for Moroni's commitment to the safety of the Nephite state. As you read chapter 61 and listen to my discussion on its contents, I ask that you divorce yourself from the continuity of the letters. The value for the reader of Alma chapter 61 isn't in the response to Moroni, which can be something of a soap opera, but in the lessons on how a leader should respond to criticism genuinely given. Pahoran could have taken great offense from Moroni's letter. He was accused of a variety of serious offenses. That said, it was readily apparent in Moroni's letter that Moroni did not know what was happening in Zarahemla. This will be our first lesson. As I said before, this letter is for each one of us. I offer that one way it is of value is as instruction for how to respond to criticism from someone. As with the previous letter, I want to address some big issues and then a few specific sermons found in the letter. The big lessons are, one, before taking offense, assume that your critic doesn't understand the context in which you made the decision or took the action being criticized. This one is easy because it is almost always true. Almost no one understands your context for making decisions and taking action because no one is in your head with you. Two, explain the context of your decisions and actions. Three, Liberty and freedom attract good people. 4. Praise righteous conviction. Most people are trying to do the right thing, and most criticism is done because the perception is that the course being criticized will not result in the ideal outcome. That is praiseworthy. 5. Remind the critic of the common ground and common goal. 6. Encourage and direct righteous effort. One of the great simple sermons comes from verse 14, quote, Let us resist evil, close quote. This doesn't need great clarification. It is a wonderful reminder of our responsibility. I will go backward a bit in offering another simple sermon from verse 9, quote, My soul standeth fast in that liberty in the which God hath made us free, close quote. It is for me to stand fast and hold on to that which has value. Pahoran tells us what that is, the liberty that comes from God, liberty through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, liberty from sin. The final simple sermon I want to point out comes from verse 18, quote, 
that we may obtain more food to send forth, close quote. The purpose of our service as leaders is to nourish God's sheep. To do so, we need to have the food and we need to send it forth. We can't accomplish this function without doing both. Second Kingmen Dissension Campaign Now I want to return to the military events of this campaign. Despite the covenant entered into by the kingmen at the beginning of the Amalekite War, they violated the covenant and began to yet again seek to establish a king. It is unclear specifically how they achieved their success, though it is clear that they used subversion and conducted their gathering of strength in a covert manner. They were able to surprise Bahorn and defeat him and his men and cause them to flee from Zarahemla and take refuge in the city of Gideon, as Bahorin stated in Alma 61.5. The movement of the judgment seat out of the capital sent a message to Nephites and Lamanites alike. Bahorin was no longer in charge. The kingmen used this as a way to claim significant power in their own eyes and in the eyes of the Lamanites. The kingmen were able to oust the government from the main city and then they sought very soon to make peace with their external Lamanite enemy that they might focus on the internal battle against Bahorn and other Nephite opponents. As we will see in the next episode, Amaron had already sent an army to reinforce Kingmen's success as Moroni and Pahorn were concluding the battle or battles against the Kingmen. The primary problem the Kingmen faced was that Moroni had the flexibility to bring men back and fight and also that the will of the people was against the idea of a king, and apparently also against this particular group providing their kingmen brand of leadership. The kingmen used intimidation to prevent reinforcements of the border armies, as Bahorn stated in Alma 61.4. Such a statement implies that the kingmen represented a significant group, there is a lot that the existence of the kingmen and the continuing desire they represent says about the Nephite culture. Clearly, the Nephites were a fragmented society, a tribal society. They seemed to exist on the edge of discord, and only extraordinary measures could unite them. Pahoran said in Alma 61.3 that the kingmen were, quote, exceedingly numerous, close quote. We are told in Alma 62.6 that these rebels were still led by a Nephite of the ruling tribe or family, Pacchus, the brother of the governor and chief judge. In the middle of the most complex war to date, waged by the Nephites, a significant group was so disenchanted, wore down, or in direct opposition that they were willing to revolt and seek accommodation with their opponent. Mormon does not hide the fragmentation, and it is critical to him that we see it. There are few details in this campaign, but the gist is that there were at least two major battles, and possibly many more. Both of the stated battles were fought in or around the city of Zarahemla. The first was the one that resulted in the expulsion of the chief judge and his supporters from the capital, as we are told in Alma 61.5. Following this first battle, the kingmen entered a correspondence with the Lamanites and established an alliance with the Lamanites. In this alliance, the kingmen were responsible for maintaining the city of Zarahemla, and for this they expected to be rewarded with being a subject king once the Lamanites conquered all, 
as we are told in Alma 61.8. And again, I want the listener to note that we will see in the next episode that Amron sent a Lamanite army to reinforce Kingman's success in Zarahemla. Bahoran established his new seat of government in the city of Gideon, and he began to gather forces to him. The rebellion then was placed under siege in Zarahemla. Moroni was asked to march with his army to support the efforts of Pahoran. The second battle occurred after Moroni received the epistle, and he led an army into the heart of the land to support the chief judge and the title of liberty. Moroni was ordered to bring his army and to gather forces as he came through the land. Moroni brought his army, probably a 2,000-man force, although it could have been as many as 4,000, as we have previously addressed regarding the idea that Moroni may have commanded a larger-than-standard force. Regardless, Moroni left the rest of the Nephite military forces in the east under the commands of Lehi and Teancum, as he was directed by Pahoran, as we are told in Alma 62.3. Moroni gathered forces as he marched to Zarahemla, and caused that the title of liberty should be raised in each location as he moved through Nephite lands. The second battle in this campaign is given limited treatment, as I quote from Alma chapter 62, verses 7 and 8. And it came to pass that Moroni and Pahoran went down with their armies into the land of Zarahemla, and went forth against the city, and did meet the men of Pachus, insomuch that they did come to battle. And behold, Pachus was slain, and his men were taken prisoners, and Pahoran was restored to his judgment seat. Close quote. Mormon does say that Moroni and Pahoran went against the city, which may mean an assault, or the comment about meeting the men of Pacus may have connoted an open field battle outside the walls of the city. Either way, Mormon gives no details at all. Mormon gave much more space to the Nephite justice after the battle, where the rebels were given a trial, or rather an execution of the Nephite law. The law seemed to state that a Nephite must be willing to take up arms in defense of their country. Those who were not so willing, but rather preferred to fight against it, were put to death. All of the kingmen, those who fought against Pahorn and Moroni, and those who had previously rebelled at the beginning of the war and were still in prison, were so tried and punished. The battles described in this limited, though very important part of the overall Amalekiahite war, give some insight into the military aspects of the Nephites, but there is much more insight into the political and legal framework of the Nephite state. The legal system and the use of the death penalty was a significant recourse in these moments of extreme decision, either defend the state from outside aggression or be executed. Additionally, the Nephites were riven with political discord, People were willing to see the state go down and be dominated by the Lamanites if they received a personal or familial benefit. The definition of loyalty within the Nephite state was an issue that may be foreign to many in the modern world who see loyalty to an abstract conception of state or law or constitution as normal and necessary to stability. Though this might seem clear as I record this in late 2021, with the actions happening in Afghanistan, where groups seem to have sided with the Taliban, even though such an association seems to have been in opposition to group interests and was certainly in contradiction of the national constitution. 
the American and more broadly the Western loyalty to abstract concepts are rare in history and even probably rare in contemporary times. It is unclear whether this campaign featured in the Third Battle of Zarahemla was the first successful city assault for the Nephite army or not. It is possible that if it were, then the city may have fallen either in direct assault to the armies of Moroni or through deception or by someone in the city opening the gates or doors to the Nephite army. As we have already seen at the battles of Gid and Mulek, Moroni was comfortable using a broad array of tactics and techniques to achieve his desired instate. Given the nature of the kingmen and their rebellion from the government, such a possibility was very likely. Mormon's metaphor. How does this battle support it? Even though this isn't a standard battle analysis, I think it is still useful to address the elements of Mormon's metaphor. If this campaign is viewed as a combination of the letters and the actions, this is the most detailed discussion of conflict in the Amalekite War. In this sense, this campaign is very important. So why did Mormon put it in? Preparation. The entire campaign is caused by a failure in societal preparation. I will address this more in the unity portion. However, it must be made clear that preparation failed, and that is why Pahoran was driven out of the capital city. That said, Moroni also demonstrates the benefits of preparation. Moroni had an army elsewhere in the Nephite state. Pahoran called upon that loyal commander with his army, and it could respond. This is a powerful expression of the importance of dispersion in preparation. From a financial sense, this is a form of diversification in preparation. Don't only be prepared in one way. Have armies or sources of power in a variety of locations and a variety of ways. Covenants. The title of liberty is the objectification of covenants in this part of the Book of Mormon story. Moroni raised it as he marched through Nephite lands. It served to remind people of the purpose of their sacrifices, as should be true of all our covenants. What is your physical reminder of your covenants? For those who regularly partake of the sacrament, then this is a reminder. I think that it also might be useful to have some symbol of the covenants. Some people wear that symbol. Some might have a picture, painting, or object to remind them. It is useful to regularly raise our personal titles of liberty as we march through the centers of the land in cleansing out sin in our life. That is what the campaign against the kingmen represent, the repentance process. Pahoran called upon external assistance to cleanse sin from the land, as we all need to do. Moroni responded because he had committed, even covenanted, to do so, and the title of liberty was his personal symbol of that covenant. Unity. The kingmen exemplify a lack of unity. They opposed their own people. Their leader opposed his own brother. They opposed the title of liberty, the covenant of their people. They did all of this with the odd belief that life under or associated with the Lamanites would in some way be better. This is the problem with disunity. The promises associated with it are all lies. There is no benefit that is derived from disunity. Whatever comes from it will only produce more problems and not solutions. 
Mormon tries to teach this fundamental truth over and over again. Note what happens for Moroni and Pahoran after unity is restored. Things go almost too easy. This isn't a statement that a unified life is easy. It probably isn't. However, it is simpler and comparatively easier. Conclusion This second campaign against the Kingmen ends, at least for a couple of years, the inherent dissensions bubbling up every so often in Nephite society. I hope the discussion in this episode has helped to explain the complexity of Nephite society. It will come up again in a few episodes. This was no more a stable society than any other. If you think that your local, national, or global politics are complex and confused, the Book of Mormon should provide insight into how such societies can function and find peace. They do so just as the Nephites did when they properly prepared, entered, and honored covenants and were unified. It is possible, even if it is difficult. Following this campaign, we will see in the next episode the actions of Pahoran and Moroni as they sent resources to support Helaman II in the west and Lehi II and Teancum in the east. They also led a powerful army toward the east as the Nephites led a multi-pronged advance to recapture the rest of their lost lands as Lehi II and Teancum attacked south along the coast and regained the originally lost cities and Pahoran and Moroni seemed to attack due east from Zarahemla to regain the recently lost city of Nephiha. Our next episode will focus on a meeting engagement battle. The follow-on episode will focus on the subsequent fighting for the city of Nephiha. As with other detailed battles, this one will include a couple of unique actions on the part of Moroni. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word, warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. Until next time.